Hi, and welcome to Berlin Side Out, a new podcast looking at international politics from Berlin with me, Benjamin Tallis. And me, Aaron Gashburnett. Join us for an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. Hello and welcome back to Berlin Side Out, a new podcast on international politics in association with the German Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Benjamin Tallis, a senior research fellow here at the Council, and together with my co-host Aaron Gashburnett, a journalist specializing in German politics, we take an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. And we explore in detail why that matters with guests who are experts on the topics we talk about. It seems that many of you think that this matters too. We've been overwhelmed by the positive response to our first few episodes. There have already been thousands of streams and downloads, and many of you have let us know how much you like Berlin Side Out on social media. So a big thank you to all of you for listening in, and we've got plenty of great content coming up for the rest of season one. But also a big thank you from both Aaron and I to the team at Degarpe here, who've made Berlin Side Out possible, not least our producer, Hendrik Werner, who's sitting next to us now. Yes, thank you very much to Hendrik and to the team here and also to all of our listeners and all of our guests who've joined us uh, so far. I'd like to second what Ben said. We're very excited at how well received our first few episodes have been. Uh, the feedback you've sent us, the recommendations you've given to your friends, your colleagues, your followers. Uh, if you like it, please feel free also to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And we're looking to continue this important conversation about Germany's new foreign policy discussion and how the world sees it. Now, you've heard us over the last few episodes get into what Germany's uh, supposed tectonic shift or sea change in foreign policy, its Seitenwende, is about, and what ultimately got it all started. Last episode, we had Ben Hodges, Eileen Matla, and Gustav Gressel lay out for us the hard but necessary choices Germany has to take in defense policy and for its military to really fulfill its special responsibility for European security. But as critical as defense is, and let's be clear, it really is, um, not to diminish its importance, the German Seitenwende is about a lot of things that go further than that. Uh, it's a strategic change that's necessary, and it's not just at the level of military readiness and strategy. Right, Ben? That's right, Aaron. And that's why the action group Zeitenwende that I lead here at the German Council on Foreign Relations took a broad approach from the get-go. Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, which triggered the Titanvender speech and the rethinking it implied, was most obviously connected to defense. But it also had immediate implications for Germany's energy policy. The country needed to get off Russian gas, and fast, having made itself dependent on that in the past. And the struggle to do that and do it quickly had all sorts of knock-on effects. Uh, it created new dependencies on authoritarian states like Azerbaijan and Qatar. It pushed Germany into going back to burning more coal and triggered a big debate about its previous decision to get off nuclear power. And all that has impacted Germany's ability to meet its climate goals. It's raised big questions about where it gets the technology to make its green transition and how that might be affected by any increase in tensions between China and the US. And all of this actually also has raised questions about Germany's economic model, its competitiveness going forward, not only because of higher costs, but also the need to make a green transition while rethinking its trade policy in order to better align the sources of our prosperity with the sources of security. And what does that imply about who we trade with and on what terms, with autocracies or just with democracies? So there's debates there also about friendshoring, which is something we're going to come on to later in the season. 
And I think that recognizing the interconnected nature of all these fields means taking an integrated as well as an international approach. And we've talked about that need to internationalize the Titan vendor, but we very much see it as an integrated process from foreign and security policy through energy and trade policy, economic policy, but also talk about technological change and digitalization. But I'd say it's even further than that. Um, it requires a, a bigger strategic rethink. It's not just about any strategy. Yeah, it's about grand strategy, which is one of my favorite terms in this field. Now, take note of that term, uh, please, listeners, because over the next several episodes, we're going to be uh, switching it up a bit, uh, pivoting a bit, if you will, from the events and the discussions that got Site and Venda all started uh, to the grand strategic choices Germany has to make to actually implement that site and vendor. Ben, it is a grand question, I know. I know, see, see what I did there. Uh, but what exactly is grand strategy? Give us an overview. Um, and, and why does Germany need to have one? Well, Germany, like all other countries, has one, whether it knows it or not. And uh, it's a question uh -huh. really of how good it is at it. And grand strategy basically is an expansion upon uh, normal strategy in that it includes all of the means at a state or a society's disposal, diplomatic, economic, informational, um, trade, all the kind of policy levers you can pull and all the ways through which a country can actually um, seek to uh, achieve a particular objective. And that means consideration of its internal policies as well as its foreign policies. And it has considerations for peacetime as well as wartime, as some of the definitions of grand strategy have it. What it's really about is aligning all the sources of power that a state and a society have to achieve that particular objective that they set and mobilizing the resources to do so. So it was one of the, the famous strategists of years past, Basil Little Hart, who said that while the horizon of strategy, traditionally understood, is bounded by war, grand strategy looks beyond the war. It looks to the subsequent peace. Now, that means having a vision, which is something that Germany has been notoriously shy of in the past. Remember how much Schmidt's famous remark that those who have visions could go to the doctor. Yes, there's a very, very famous indictment of grand strategy in Germany there. It is, but indeed the point that all societies and states have grand strategy, whether they know it or not, also implies that you have a vision, whether you're explicit about it or not. And the big question for us in the terms of the Titan vendor is what has that vision been in the past? How has it been achieved? So what resources have been mobilized to achieve that? And what about both the vision and the resources and the policies need to change to help Germany actually um, get fit for the future? Well, and I'd like to add here that, for example, Angela Merkel, the previous chancellor, was frequently sort of criticized for not having a vision or a strategy. But in actual fact, I think in many ways, the strategy was perhaps a little bit more simple than we'd like to think. It was uh, cheap Russian energy, outsource the trade and economic model to Chinese trade and outsource our security to the U.S., which is a strategy. You just, you know, part of the strategic calculus maybe is to not really say the quiet part out loud all of the time uh, rather than the absence of a strategy indeed, right? That's right. And that's what we heard. Uh, it was Britta Jakob talking on our first episode about that um, strategy of stability actually being a mask for stasis and stagnation which the chickens of which came home to roost when some of those building blocks that you described, Aaron, have come crashing down and left Germany facing a major rethink. But to actually make that rethink real, different elements of society, different parts of society need to come on board. That means getting businesses on board, aligned with new trade policy, understanding what our business interests compared to national interests and how to make them more 
compatible. But it also means getting people on board and giving people a real stake in a future that they can see as meaningful for them. Why should they be mobilized as part of this effort? Where is the whole of society vision that would actually give people the incentive to invest now and to pay the costs that are there for higher defense, for um, different kinds of trade policy? Why should they pay those costs if they don't see a better future for them? And understanding what that better future might be, I think, is really crucial to say, well, can we actually have democratic societies that live up to their billing? Can we make the material as well as moral superiority of our systems more tangible to more of our people over time? If And we'll need to if we want to get people on board in the fight for the future of free societies. Now, that means rights and freedoms, but I think it also means the hope of progress. So grand strategy then, I would say, Ben, in a nutshell, is not simply about how we defend our societies and advance their values around the world, which is a lot of what we talk about on this podcast in terms of foreign policy, but it's also about building societies that are worth defending. Uh, That's a big reason, I think, why we're seeing certain domestic reforms in Ukraine, uh, why we're seeing legalized marriage equality in Estonia. There's a war on And it's being fought. But at the end of the day, there's still something that's being built that we want to see survive and thrive. So that's why it's necessary to uh, charge ahead with this kind of domestic vision, even in the middle of an international uh, crisis. Uh, That sounds, here it is, folks, pretty new idealist to me, Ben. but I know that we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. That's right, Aaron. It, it does. But also other any other vision of grand strategy would have to contend with similar versions of those questions. And we need to talk about why we should take a grand strategic approach to defending, renewing and spreading liberal democracy. And to do so, I'm very happy that we have here today to join us Alice Stolmeyer. Now, Alice is the founder and executive director of Defend Democracy. She has a background in studies of uh, science, technology and society, founded her own consultancy, Stolmeyer EU, which specializes in EU public affairs, political communications and digital advocacy. But crucially for our discussion today, in 2017, Alice founded Defend Democracy, an independent, non-partisan, transatlantic organization dedicated to defending democracy from foreign, domestic, and technological threats. And Alice's work was recognized, you may recognize her name, I'm sure, because she appeared in Politico's latest Power 40 of the 40 people who effectively set the agenda in politics, public policy, and advocacy in Brussels. Alice, welcome to Berlin Inside Out. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show with us. Thanks very much, Alice. And we are very excited also to be having you as well to a big high-level conference happening in both Berlin and Prague uh, very soon. Uh, And we're hoping to bring uh, our listeners a lot of great insights from there, from you and from our other participants. Our topic is what we're getting started on discussing today uh, about neo-idealism and future grand strategies for liberal democracies. Liberal democracy proved to ultimately be the system that won the Cold War, Uh, Now, more than 30 years later, liberal democracies seem to be unsure of themselves, uh, yet Ukraine has inspired many people in the world's liberal democracies, including in Germany, to perhaps wake up and ask, did we get too comfortable? What is happening now actually started not in February last year, but in 2014. At the time, I used to be um, working on European energy and climate policies, and Being a digital activist or digital advocate, I often tweeted about the the broader geopolitical picture, like um, 
why we needed to produce more renewable energy and increase our energy efficiency targets to become less dependent on Russian energy. And being from the Netherlands originally, uh, in 2014, I obviously also tweeted about how uh, Russia shut down flight MH17, which for a tiny country like the Netherlands is like our 9-11. So apparently Russian trolls didn't like that. So I got attacked on Twitter, which at the time was like, very new because Twitter was still, uh, you know, a decent space. We can't say that today. For me, that was the moment that I thought, hmm, what's going on here? And I started to educate myself on things like Russian propaganda and something called active measures. Alice, tell us, what inspired you to found Defending Democracy? What happened was that by 2016, I got increasingly concerned about democracy because I realized or I kind of connected the dots between on the one hand this increasingly frequent uh, foreign interference in not just our elections but also referenda and more like all year round on, on social media and on the other hand certain features that digital platforms have and I thought hmm if those two start working together, then we have a huge problem for democracy. I also saw many similarities between what was happening in the United States and in the UK. I felt something needs to be done because I didn't really see um, a response, not, not from our governments, uh, but let alone coordinated at the EU level. Uh, that's different these days. And then from that grew an actual organization called Defend Democracy. And our mission is to defend and strengthen democracy against foreign, domestic and technological threats. And speaking of grand strategy, it's very important to realize that those threats are not only partly overlapping, but they are interconnected and they are even reinforcing each other. So we were talking a few minutes ago about how citizens of liberal democracies may have gotten perhaps a little bit too comfortable and may not in fact be used to the fact that democracy actually has to be defended, that it can uh, be threatened, that it's not always a given or assured. So first of all, what does defend democracy do to actually um, defend democracy? We have three work streams. One is raising awareness. One is advocacy, which is more on specific um, policies. And the third work stream is what we call action, which involves trainings, workshops, exercises, bringing different people and organizations and countries together to work together. Because what we need, uh, and I learned this from countries like the Baltics and the Nordics, that we need a so-called whole of society approach to what in security circles is called hybrid threats to democracy. So that means that our response or our approach to this new geopolitical situation cannot just come from top down, uh, but it can also not just come from bottom up. It really means that the public, private and uh, civic sectors somehow need to start working together. Well, there's several ways. We organize events both on a more uh, grassroots level, let's say open for the wider audience, um, including in, in Berlin. 
since 2018, we uh, organize so-called uh, democracy drinks, which are informal networking events for democracy defenders. So do you think then of all the actors that you deal with, the state actors, politicians, people, civil society, who are most acutely aware of the threats to democracy? And perhaps you could say a little more about those threats. Well, I think it's definitely countries like Ukraine and the Baltics and the Nordics who are most aware. That makes sense because they are both in time and in uh, geography closer to our aggressive eastern neighbor. Like when um, last year I was in Lithuania, even with all my knowledge about habit threats and all the conversations that I had previously and all the things that I had read, when you are actually there, you realize that it's also the closeness in, in distance and time that makes it a different situation there. And Obviously, in in Ukraine, that's even more now. The, if, yeah, that's even more the case. I mean, that's a very, very clear external threat to democracy. But you also talk about countering domestic threats to democracy. What are those, in your view, and who is aware of that, and who needs to wake up? It's not one single thing, but it's increasing polarization and domestic extremism, but also the democratic backsliding that we have seen in countries across the world since at least fifteen years. And even the more established democracies, like my native country, the Netherlands, or like the UK or, or the United States, we're not immune to backsliding. And so um, what I often say is that democracy is like a marriage. It's not a noun, but a verb. So it's not enough to go vote or organize elections every four years. It's something that we must work on every day to keep it healthy. Uh, let's turn to Germany for a minute and its level of awareness. Uh, in your experience, how would you rate German awareness of these kinds of threats? Uh, and is there perhaps also uh, a difference uh, in between the public's perception of those threats and the uh, elite's perception of those threats, particularly our politicians? This is a theme that we've returned to a few times already this season, the difference between public perception and elite perception in Germany. Yeah, it has been a big wake-up call for not just Germany, but for many governments. I still think that some are hoping that we can return to business as usual. I don't think that's very realistic. And that's something that we need to prepare for. Like, it's a question of long-term thinking and acting and preparing. Then something which is, I think, quite specific, but what I really appreciate about uh, German civil society is that many are, uh, more than some other countries, aware of the importance of data privacy and digital rights. And I have heard some people say that this may actually be because of Germany's history. So in, in your view, uh, is liberal democracy still the best system and, and, and why is that the case? And it also depends, I guess, in how you define liberal democracy. Um, I think the, the, the connection that you sometimes hear with capitalism or trade, that's perhaps not very useful anymore because we seemed to think that when you were doing trade with other countries, then 
democracy would also magically um, be some uh, kind of a byproduct of that. Sure. I mean, the classic convergence wager where people thought neoliberal economics would spread liberal politics, but we know that didn't happen. Wandel durch Handel in German. I also think that we need to be, that it's time that we realize that we have to, to, to ask some questions about growth. Like, is it even possible to have continued growth in our inner society, given planetary boundaries and things like that? Is it possible, even if there were no planetary boundaries, is it even possible that from generation on generation that your kids will always have a better situation than yourself? I mean, how much, how many more levels can we go? So it's, I don't think it's very realistic to have this never ending growth. And I think we need to start thinking about that. We need to start thinking about perhaps a new social contract or and about more solidarity. That's interesting, Alice, because I think that gets to the heart of one of the main current debates around this, whereas some, my, myself included, have argued that we really need to revive that idea of progress if we're going to get people to make those investments in the short-term costs of securing and defending democracy. We will need to renew it in terms of its material superiority as well and need to give people that hope of progress. And obviously, this is something that goes against some of the current thinking, the degrowth thinking that you mentioned. But I, I question whether by getting rid of neoliberal economics, which a lot of people would, would agree with, a lot of people, of course, don't as well, we need to give up on the faith in or the hope of progress and growth. But isn't that also the hope of uh, democracy in general, the promise of democracy, that you can actually debate uh, what you do about growth or not, right? I mean, I think I would agree with you, Ben. Um, I, I, I certainly, myself, in terms of needing to prove material superiority, but the point is I think that in a democracy, in a proper democracy, we can actually have this debate uh, in civil terms about what to do about this exact material question. In an authoritarian society, uh, you can't do that. So <laughs> I suppose... That's right. And I mean, there's questions then about redistribution and who gets what and how fair that it, fairly that's done. But there's also questions about prosperity and where it comes from and where we generate our economic wealth from. One thing that uh, Defend Democracy is really excited about is uh, a new program that we are developing. I can't disclose too much about it yet. But it's about uh, building uh, democratic resilience. And you'll hear uh, more about it soon. So stay tuned. Wow, excellent. We look forward to hearing more about that. Definitely. Looking forward to seeing you in Prague for more, more of these discussions around how we defend, renew and spread liberal democracy or what comes after it. Alice Stommer, thanks very much indeed. And uh, good night from Berlin. Thank you and greetings from Brussels. We're very excited to have joining us today, uh, fellow Canadian Chris Alexander. I'm sorry, everyone, I have to get that plug in. Uh, he is a former member of parliament in Canada and also a former minister for citizenship and immigration uh, in my home country in Canada. Before that, he had a storied career in Canada's foreign service, serving as its resident ambassador to Afghanistan in the early 2000s. And before that, he was stationed at the embassy in Moscow and at the Russia desk in Ottawa. He is a leading voice on international affairs. Thank you very much for joining us. It is an honor to have you with us. We have been talking uh, on this episode about the need for liberal democracies to have a strategy, a grand strategy, 
for their defense, um, for their development and renewal, etc. Why would you say that free societies need to take this new strategic approach? Fantastic question. We could send several episodes on the rationale for this, but it really boils down, in my mind, to one issue. And that is that um, the adversaries of democracy, those who are working actively against democracy to subvert democracy, often without many principal leaders in democracies noticing what they're doing, let alone being able to counteract it, those adversaries have a strategy for dismantling democracy, for weakening democracy, for reversing the progress democracy has made on every continent. And they've had some success. Look at Africa, look at Latin America, look at parts of Asia, uh, and certainly look at Europe and the countries still blocked on their path to democracy, like Belarus, Moldova up until quite recently, and parts of Georgia and Ukraine that are occupied. So when your adversaries have a a strategy that is well-funded, that is ruthless, that is multidimensional to dismantle and destroy democracy, those who prize democracy, those of us who live by those values, had really better have a strategy for counteracting that. We spent a generation, let's be honest, just assuming you could put democracy on cruise control and that it would inevitably, in a Whiggish 19th century way, broaden and deepen its presence around the world. Well, things haven't worked out that way. And so now we need a strategy and leadership of the kind you're providing with this podcast and lots of the thought leadership that you're doing to drive things in a more more deliberate way forward for democracy. This point about us not knowing what our strategy is, is so important. And is interestingly, it's not that new. It was even Vladimir Putin who said at a meeting of the G20 back in Australia in, in 2014, if memory serves, he said, I have a strategy, you don't. This was echoed by a Polish minister at the NATO summit in Warsaw who said, we know what his strategy is. We don't know what ours is. So exactly this rallying effort, democracy on cruise control, the convergence wager, the end of history time. And this, so this effort to wake us up. How do we start doing this? And also how do we do it from perhaps a step or two behind? I think one thing that hasn't been done, one obvious step that hasn't been taken is just connecting the dots, making connections between what's been happening domestically within our democracies and what's been happening, let's call it geopolitically, in many parts of the world that are part of a single strategy our adversaries have. Like, let's leave China aside to for one moment. Russia alone has been over 10 years in a very robust way, over 20 years and longer in more subtle ways, been building support for anti-democratic elements and extreme elements within our political cultures and, and societies. At the same time, they've been testing the limits and using hard power and aggression to win back leverage in places like Georgia, in Ukraine, particularly since 2014, though before that there was a whole decade when they were trying to subvert Ukraine by corruption. Africa, we know the story particularly over the last five years. So let's make those connections you know, between Steve Bannon and Marine Le Pen and Orban and Assad. It's all part of the same story. And then after connecting those dots and exposing you know, the Glenn Greenwalds and others who are paid or unpaid useful idiots, supporters of this effort, then let's connect the dots 
among the even lar much larger constituents of people who actually prize democracy, who actually believe in democracy, you know, who actually can do something about it when they get the right information, when they have the right leadership, when they have political parties that actually consider this an issue. And to be honest, you know, this is a big discussion, but I think more of that leadership is in Europe now than it is in any other single place. And Europe is pushing back, which it, it must continue to do. We need to connect these dots and, and empower the centers of excellence at defending democracy and exposing the subversion that has been underway and fund those efforts more than we have been today. I'm reminded by one comment that Emmanuel Macron made once um, when uh, Marine Le Pen uh, sort of criticized him for making, uh, highlighting her meeting with Vladimir Putin, for example. And uh, she said to him, well, you know, you sort of did the same thing. And he said uh, something along the lines of, well, I was meeting my counterpart, not my banker. And this was, this was a comment that I, I, I think, as you say, connecting the dots, that I, I wish that we would actually do more often, that we would sort of just call out a bit more forcefully, um, I would say. Chris, let me pick up something you said there, because as well as these, these external threats to our domestic democracy, which are, are manifestly there, it's us who've created the attack surface for this to some extent, isn't it? This is about the cracks we've made in our own societies. How do we go? What are those and how do we go about fixing them? It's so true. The fact that there is Russian capital, there is Russian money sloshing around in Washington and Miami and Toronto in quantities and London, obviously, in many parts of Europe, Switzerland, in quantities that weren't there in the 20s and 30s. So the political corruption can be funded directly from inside our democracies uh, a lot of the time. Let me just push this back to you a little bit again, Chris, because I think that what I fully agree with everything you said, but also the notion that Trump could get elected simply just by Russian actions, just by Russian propaganda, I don't think quite adequately expresses the true roots of this problem. And I think what, what you were saying before is it's clear that you know, our opponents have a strategy. We don't, or as yet we don't. But also we have, that's partly because we haven't got an objective. We haven't got things that people to aim for. Ben, you're exactly right. I mean, let's be honest here. The Russians are already only pouncing on this stuff because there's a willing constituency for it. They, they don't create disaffection on their own. They jump on it and exacerbate it. Look at the Brexit debate, right? There were lots of Eurosceptics and people who wanted to leave the EU long before Russia came along, but they ramped that sentiment up using Facebook ads and lots of other means. Similarly, in the United States, there is a, you know, no one can deny it. There is a group of American citizens who don't have hope for their own futures because of globalization or the polarization of wealth in the United States or the fact that their community hasn't done well, the factory left, no other industry has come. And so they're looking for someone strong who understands them, feels their pain and sometimes their rage and will you know, literally shake things up, break the system in a way that they hope will mean they emerge better off. And we've seen that in the past. Whenever there's dislocation, there's a certain constituency, even in democracies, that look for a strong leader. And Putin, for some of these people, is that guy, literally Vladimir Putin. More often than not, it's his proxies, whether it's Orban or Berlusconi in an earlier era, or you know people who are close to him and who are channeling some of his messages. We need to show that they don't have the plan. You know, like chaos is not a strategy. Certainly fascism, which is really where Russia is at, is not a model for anyone. But we also need to show that democracy has a plan, that bringing democracies closer together in terms of their economic integration, 
in terms of their the deepening of markets, the exchanges of best practices about how to support groups that haven't done well in recent decades, about social programs, about inclusiveness. All of these things can be, all of those agenda items can be wielded much more powerfully by democratic leaders. And we've seen some of that from the Bidens of the world. We've seen some of it from leaders in the Baltics, Nordic, Europe, frontline states. They kind of get this need for democracies to come together. Some some in in Asia who feel threatened by China. But there hasn't been a, a really galvanizing effort to bring democratic leaders together around a new agenda. You call it neo-idealism. I like the term. But, but it needs to be very pragmatic and very concrete for, for the constituencies that we're all anxious to attract and to engage. So something I think that Ben and I have talked a lot about on this particular podcast, uh, whether it's neo-idealism or whether it's understanding of, of the need to defend democracy or to support Ukraine, I thought was interesting that you believe uh, from the outside in uh, that Europe is perhaps a little bit more aware of some of these challenges um, at the moment and the challenges that come with it. But I would also say that uh, we observe that different countries in Europe or different spots in Europe um, have a different appreciation or some yeah. are further ahead than others. And I think one of our criticisms of Germany certainly is that it's definitely behind some of these other countries that way. Do we have criticisms of Germany, Aaron? I must <laughs> no, have been listening never. to a different podcast than yeah. you have been. No, never. But I think uh, the question is, is that if you're if you're looking at Europe and you're looking at best practice examples in terms of what not only uh, some European states, but even I suppose Canada and other democracies could could look at uh, for some inspiration, where would you recommend people to look? Great question. First, I don't want to come across as giving pass to Europe. There are huge problems, right? Orban's role as a spoiler at all levels. Europe hasn't addressed that, you know, Greek ship owners profiteering from sanctions against Russian oil shipments and, and making a mint without real action from the commissioner or anyone else to, to address that. And, and all of, all of those, not, not to mention a certain level of political corruption that is still determining German policy towards Ukraine. I would call it simply that in the SPD and, and elsewhere and in the other parties as well. It hasn't been rooted out. And when people go and have a a party with Gerhard Schroeder in the middle of this war, something is really wrong. I'm so glad you mentioned that, Chris, because that's something that I think not a lot of Germans yet fully understand how badly that is seen in the outside world. It looks terrible. It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. But then you have a Europe that is doing the following things. One, regulating the digital realm in a more responsible, more proactive way than any other jurisdiction. And they do that because the commission has some independence, because it has a robust regulatory role. But, you know, I as a Canadian really admire that because we have laws against hate propaganda and incitement to hatred and, you know, really basic standards that have governed our media realm all my life. And that's just been blown out of the water by social media without any reaction. And Europe is setting a, good, a better standard there. Secondly, you have a Europe that is, you know, a European commission that is actually funding defense spending for Ukraine. And driving its members to play a role that no one in the English-speaking world expected would have been possible. And it's because Lithuania and Poland and Czech Republic are such strong voices, which is mostly because Ukrainians have been <laughs> their own best advocates and have created this bond. Finally, you have a, a Europe that is starting 
to talk after maybe a decade, Ben, of, of not talking about enlargement, not talking about starting to deploy that very powerful policy tool around its periphery. You know, some of the engagement with Africa, I would say, is mistaken, but some of it has been very well done. And it is counteracting the influence of Wagner, and it is counteracting the influence of human smugglers. With Turkey, there's now an agenda, uh, an uncomfortable one, uh, a rough and ready one, but a real agenda, not to mention with Moldova and Belarus. And that hope that all these countries have of closer relations with Europe and eventually accession for many of them to the European Union has been restored. And it's a very powerful instrument if it's managed properly um, and, and the engagement continues. So we've talked about defending our democracies and the need to do that. But at the same time, what do you think, how, how do we renew liberal democracy? Yeah, exactly. How do, how do you go for the center, a bold radical vision of the center that's not just more of the same? Yeah. Because more of the same isn't what people want. Not cruise control, as we've been talking about. Let it be my turn to be bold. I mean, I think Canadians and citizens of democracies around the world want something very simple, which is policies and political focus on issues that will actually make a difference. For them. Like, it's not these niche issues, which so dominate our headlines, so dominate the waves of outrage on social media that are actually going to make a difference. In most cases, at the margin, they will you know, tear down the standard of living or the sense of self-satisfaction of the majority of people for the benefit of some tiny group of usually self-indulgent people that are pursuing some issue. It could be economic, it could be cultural, it could be social. We need to address big issues. If we're going to have a better world, we need to be very clear about... Russia's defeat in Ukraine, Ukraine's victory, accountability for those responsible for this genocide, rolling back Russian active measures and political corruption from our countries. This is something that will actually make people's lives better. It will certainly make Europe more whole and more free, from Lisbon to Luhansk, and let's say from... Uh, uh, Baerbock quote there. Yeah, that was a nice touch from Annalena Baerbock the other day. From Cork to Kissinau as well. Um, from Cork to Kissinau, nicely done. Okay, ah, okay, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but more generally, you know, th this kind of mood music of interference and subversion and disinformation has gone way too far, and it needs to be confronted, confronted head on. And I don't see our political leaders doing that. Now. You know, a lot of them say we're supporting Ukraine for as long as it takes. Secretly, they want to do a deal and give up part of Ukrainian territory. That's unacceptable. And that will not deliver a better standard of living for our societies today, let alone for those a generation. That will deliver more Russian impunity. Exactly. I mean, this has been shown time after time that our weakness provokes Russia. We give them the space to move into it. But that ability to connect the geopolitical to the personal, to the tangible personal circumstances of people is something that does seem difficult for a lot of politicians at the moment. And that's hence why neo-idealism is grand strategy in a way. But I, I wanted to come to something where you've, you've been able to do that in the past, Chris, with your work in Afghanistan. Um, I mean, that was very clearly had geopolitical underpinnings, geopolitical implications and stakes. But one of the key elements of 
the missions there was to improve the circumstances of people on the ground. Successful lessons can we take from that, but also what can we learn from how we failed to spread liberal democracy in the first 20 years of this century? It's a brilliant um, analogy, Ben, and one I, I hadn't made so far in a connection I hadn't made in, in my own mind during this conversation, but it needs to be made. Let's be honest, for the first year, 10 years, roughly, of international heavy international engagement in Afghanistan. Uh, we made a difference. We Life got better for Afghans. They will tell you that if they're free to speak their minds. And the statistics show that, you know, everything from maternal and infant mortality to uh, rates of enrollment and education to standard of living, GDP per capita, and so forth, it went up. But where did we fail? We failed on the grand strategy front. We tried to build you know, development and uh, security success in one country without recognizing that just across the border in a society that's much larger, um, intimately connected to Afghanistan in every way through millennia of history, but also uh, dec- more recently decades of war, Pakistan's generals had a different agenda and they were determined to put the Taliban back into play and to put them back into power, which they actually did. So you can't approach these things piecemeal. You need a strategy that works. And the strategy that would have worked, in my mind, in Afghanistan, would have been to call out the Pakistanis when they started doing this in the early 2000s, to sanction them when necessary, to um, take other political steps if and when necessary. But we never did that. And so we were defeated by our own naivety, partly, and above all, by our own failure to embrace a regional strategy that would have actually worked. And that contributed to the impunity of Russia. They were very happy to see us bogged down there and even more happy to see us bogged down in the unjust and wrong-headed intervention in Iraq because it gave them time as we were distracted for a decade or more to spread the wings of their subversion in Europe, North America, and elsewhere. This was a, a, a distraction that worked from Moscow's perspective and a strategy that failed from our perspective because we didn't identify who the real enemies and as far as i'm concerned there there are four countries that have been waging covert large-scale proxy wars and information wars against democracy russia in some ways remains the most sophisticated china has certainly been doing it iran does it particularly in iraq syria and lebanon but paints on a on a broader canvas as well. And Pakistan has done it. And Pakistan dimension gets talked about less than the other three, which I think is a real shame. I'd like to back up quickly to something that um, we were talking about a little bit earlier, which is the need for moderate politicians to focus on things that matter to people. And my question here is, are we as democracies paying enough attention to growth and material prosperity. Uh, We hear uh, a lot of uh, theories come out about degrowth, about the end of growth, uh, this sort of thing. Uh, This is something that I don't hear that much of in Eastern Europe, for example. (laughs) Three points. First, people really do want opportunity. You know, they want to be able to look after their children. They want to be able to live better ideally than they did decades ago or their parents did and that doesn't have to mean more money they want a quality of life in their services around them their public space 
as well as their private life and their buying power. Um, and then secondly, they want, they are interested in inclusiveness. You know, there is a reason why the democracies that have, you know, the lower Gini coefficients are seen as the most robust right now, you know, in, in Nordic Europe and elsewhere. You know, there is, populism is less likely to get traction in a country where the people who are worse off are not that far behind. And then thirdly, just don't sell people false hopes. You know, this idea that you could just shut down our energy production and the private sector would come up with clean ways of generating power and so forth. It hasn't happened. We did manage through some of these policies to reduce um, investment in oil and gas in Canada, chase most of the international investors away, have them literally disinvest. But our carbon footprint has not gone down. On the contrary, it's gone up. So, you know, give people realistic paths to transition. If Canada had taken a different approach on energy, we would be sending LNG, you know, as one of the largest gas producers, oil producers, and oil to Europe. We went in another direction, and we actually made ourselves more dependent for energy infrastructure on the United States, which, if you explain it to Canadians, no Canadian wanted. So let's be realistic about transitions. Let's be realistic about nuclear energy. We stopped building that for 20 years in Canada, which used to be one of the prime sources of civilian nuclear expertise. Uh, and now we're only resuming it you know, belatedly um, as one of the cleanest solutions, you know, drivers of, of transition that we should have been concentrated on for 20 or 30 years. So I, I think there is a, a tendency in today's politics for ideology, these shiny goals of green this or or less government or you know there are all kinds of of slogans that get bandied about you're not going to achieve anything without robust and and well-managed government services you know no one no successful democracy devotes less than 40 percent of its gdp to government services if chris you have any sway to be able to send over some good advice on nuclear power along with that lng that we'd love to get over here in germany then we'd we'd be delighted to have it and you'll be happy to know we talk about that on another episode of the the podcast Then all this talk of grand strategy here is awesome. And it brings us to two high-level events uh, that we are organizing in Berlin and Prague very soon, where we will take this forward, uh, also bringing in new idealism. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely, yes. We're very excited to be hosting a roundtable here at uh, DGAP in Berlin on Mastering the Titan Vendor Together, Developing Grand Strategy for Liberal Democracies. And that's going to take a look at neo-idealism, Aaron, as you mentioned, uh, but also at the concept of team power, which we've been pioneering here at the German Council on Foreign Relations, about how to get democratic states to work together as a team to master these multiple interconnected mega-transitions that we face and that we've been talking about earlier in the show and to look at really what elements of team play between states might actually look like but as i say we're also going to be talking about neo-idealism there and neo-idealism is an emerging approach to grand strategy for liberal democracies and understanding it in that way is the focus of then the second event uh, which we're organizing in prague together with our partners at Europeum, which is a czech think tank who we're very much looking forward to working with on this
internationalizing the Seitenwende, as we like to call it on Berlin Side Out. Uh, now, you and I have been dying to finally talk about this particular concept here. What's the most important elements of neo-idealism? Well, neo-idealism is a morally based approach to geopolitics, um, grounded in the power of values conceived as ideals to strive for. Human rights and fundamental freedoms, uh, social and cultural liberalism, democratic governance, self-determination for democratic societies, and perhaps most importantly, the rights of citizens in those societies to a hopeful future. And this came out of looking at the responses to Russia's war and full-scale invasion of Ukraine, particularly responses from uh, some of the leaders who we'll talk about perhaps in a moment, but from Ukrainians uh, themselves, from Volodymyr Zelensky, from Kaya Kalas, uh, Jan Lipavsky in the Czech Republic, who really made it clear that there was a a way to a different and better kind of geopolitics. And I thought this actually opened the door to a, what could be a useful grand strategy for liberal democracies going forward. I think crucially, one thing that we've talked about quite a lot, and you put it very nicely, Aaron, when you said that neo-idealists don't see values as luxuries to be set aside when hard-nosed interests are at stake, but rather for neo-idealists, our values are our interests. And that's something that, for example, Annalena Baerbock has also expressed here in Germany. She called the distinction between values and interests, quote-unquote, total crap when talking in English at the Heinrich Böll Stiftung earlier in the year. I remember that. <laughs> yeah, it was a great moment to be in the audience for, for that. Um, but just to, to avoid any confusion, there's also a very hard edge to neo-idealism. This isn't some kind of dreamy, utopian approach. Neo-idealism sees the need to robustly defend democratic societies and free societies when they're threatened and to arm ourselves to do so. Moreover, I think it's important that we rethink our relationships with non-democracies and the institutions we mediate those relationships through. So are those relationships, trade with China, for example, or previously dependency on Russian fossil fuels, helping or hindering the cause of democracy and freedom? And are our institutions fit for purpose and so on? So those are all key elements of neo-idealism as a grand strategy for liberal democracies. I suppose neo-idealism is also uh, a way of just saying that we actually have to have a strategy, um, that liberal democracy is not some sort of impregnable fortress that is never going to be conquered if it is not appropriately defended and if it isn't sort of the argument for it isn't made continuously every day and anew. Otherwise, uh, the foundations of that fortress could crumble as well, right? That, that's exactly right. And neo-idealism is about trying to express the core of what that strategy is. It's important to highlight, too, that neo-idealism isn't just a new academic theory or international relations model or a way of doing grand strategy. Although, Ben, I know that you in particular have been doing lots of work around that. So I do encourage our listeners to check our show notes for more writing on new idealism if you're interested. Uh, we are going to come back to it uh, over the next few episodes and over the rest of the series, I'm sure. So um, check that out. But there are plenty of real-world practitioners. Uh, and I would say that Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky started uh, as the main standard bearer uh, for it, at least at the beginning, um, really by appealing to the better instincts of democracies across the world through parliamentary addresses just uh, everywhere. And when he's been doing these addresses, he's cited sort of principle after moral principle, um, really to appeal to people and leaders uh, across the West, uh, help my country, give me the hard power, power tools that uh, I need to fight and win that very famous uh, quote, I need ammunition, I don't need a ride. <laughs> um, for example, that's uh, the 
the real big one that sticks out into anyone's minds, but all of his parliamentary addresses essentially said that uh, in different languages. Yeah, and that freedom must be better armed than tyranny. Than tyranny, yeah, also a big one. Uh, so he's encouraged uh, people all over the world um, and politicians, including regular people on Twitter like NAFO, for example, relive those heroic moments of history. And, but also, in a harder sense, confront people and governments and political elites with examples of when they've uh, failed to live up to their as, ideals. As when addressing the Bundestag here in Germany. Yeah, and I remember that particular address. That probably was, in I think, one of the harsher addresses that he gave to any particular parliament. Uh, he very famously said, um, we always uh, said that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline was going to be used as a weapon. We warned you about this. You didn't listen to us. You kept insisting that it was business, business, business. So that was also a part of it as well, not just inspiration, but also really, really calling out uh, certain things. But through all of the this work that he's done um, and saying freedom must be better armed than tyranny, uh, Zelensky, I think, convinced uh, people around the world that, you know, it's not just our fight in Ukraine. It is also uh, yours as well. But other than Zelensky, we have some other examples. So uh, certainly in the Baltics, we have Latvian President Edgars Rinkiewicz. Uh, we have Artis Pabriks, current Lithuanian Foreign Minister Gabriel Landsbergis. Um, and then... Uh, for the ladies, uh, uh, Kaya Kallis in Estonia, <laughs> for sure. Um, Sana Marin, the former prime minister of Finland, who took her country into NATO uh, and uh, led and, and told Russia to get out of Ukraine as yeah. the right way to end the conflict. The most simple, clear route out of war was for, for Russia to get out of Ukraine. End, there, of, end of discussion. End of discussion. And that, that I mm -hmm. think, really puts a point, Aaron, like many of the examples you've just given, on the idea or the, the fact that neo-idealism is not some abstract thing. It's yeah, not are. just a theory. There's a highly practical and very pragmatic component to it. There are people who actually advance it. Perhaps one of those examples would be Ursula von der Leyen, um, the current European Commission president. Uh, Ukraine is a member of the family and we want them in. This whole idea of, you know, the democratic world is a family and Europe is a family. It's not just an economic zone yeah they were they're one of us and they belong with us exactly I mean, in two sentences on the 27th of february she upturned two decades of eu policy on ukraine mm -hmm. i mean this was a remarkable um demonstration of how the power of ideas and actually moral clarity can work as excellent political strategy and it was that spirit that she was able to drive through with the help of some of the leaders you mentioned before the central and east european uh, states leaders who were very strongly pushing over the objections of berlin and paris among others to make sure that ukraine did have its eu candidacy recognized so i think it's important what you said to note that there are inconsistencies at the moment in neo-idealism. Um, there's perhaps not too many fully-fledged, totally coherent neo-idealist politicians. It's very new, right? Right, it's a work in progress, but we can see strands of it, streaks of it, moments of it. And one thing we're trying to do here is to help connect those dots. If we look at particularly Kaya Kallis, Sana Marin, Ursula von der Leyen, Annalena Baerbock, um, the ladies of neo-idealism, if you will, for a minute, um, the, all of them come from different political traditions. So Sana Marin is a social democrat. Um, Kaya Kallis's uh, party in Estonia is affiliated with the liberal Renew Europe at the, at the, at the European level. Ursula von der Leyen is a Christian democrat, a center-right German conservative. Um, and Annalena Baerbock is a green. So uh, I think it's important to highlight because critics of neo-idealism sometimes say that it is neoconservatism 2.0 or neoliberalism 2.0. 
But those two particular ideologies are rooted in those kinds of political traditions. Neo-idealism, um, from the examples uh, that we've been talking about as they illustrate, uh, really can be a broad church. I think that's right, Aaron. And what to me this is about partly is about recapturing that broad-based sense of what liberalism actually is. And you can see that all of those parties you just mentioned... <laughs> to some extent, overlap with understandings of liberalism. But we've also seen liberalism gone awry in recent years. Yes. Um, liberal internationalism in, in international politics, which really made a fetish out of institutions as ends in themselves rather than means to serving the, the goals and the ends of freedom and democracy yes. and of progress. Um, neoliberalism in the economic sense, which I think has wrought untold damage not only on our on our domestic societies, but on our ways of relating with non-democratic states. It's created dependencies on authoritarian states that have enriched and entrenched authoritarian leaders who are our, our enemies. Let's be very clear about that. But also it's undermined the sense of resilience and coherence and cohesion in our domestic societies. So not enough of our people can tangibly feel those benefits. So it's it's about reco recovering the kind of liberalism that also doesn't engage in identitarian politics that we've seen across um, various parts of the West, but that realizes you can build a liberal community that accepts difference. Build something together. Uh, build something together. While which can celebrating still, difference. Exactly right. I think this point that you made about liberal internationalism institutions is an interesting one if we look particularly at the UN um, and at uh, the Security Council in particular. Um, when it comes to German foreign policy, I think that uh, a lot of Germans have sort of seen themselves, uh, both political elites and, and, and in the public, have seen themselves as defenders of liberal internationalism, sort of the best students of liberal internationalism. But then we come to the question, well, what is liberal internationalism delivering us when we are consistently having to work with a UN Security Council that contains Russia and China that just veto basically almost every, everything that is that is substantive for example so well that that's it i mean this is what happens when you prioritize liberal form over liberal substance there you go uh, where you prioritize prioritize exactly process over outcome and what we've seen is that illiberal actors notably russia but also to a degree china have been able to instrumentalize our supposedly liberal structures for distinctly illiberal purpose and that's i think where people look at these institutions and they say, what is it for? How is this serving us? And for then the countries who have, to an extent, benefited from that in the past, say, oh, but these are the rules. We simply have to follow them. It's misunderstanding what the rules are there to do. But I think it raises an interesting question about the rules-based international order, as it's often known. And we hear people saying we should defend the rules-based international order. Well, if those rules aren't working for us, we shouldn't. We should be thinking about how to reform those. I'm thinking about which rules we need. It's also no surprise that this quest to defend the rules-based international order has not secured huge support among the Global South countries. They knew that their system of rules was rigged against them. Well, and I also think that the publics of different countries understand the rules-based international order differently. For example, if we look at polls that have been conducted in recent years, about whether Western publics think that UN approval should be required, for example, to um, engage in a military intervention. We see that uh, well over 60%, um, and in some cases, in Germany's case, even up to 75% of respondents say that, yeah, UN approval is needed for this sort of thing. But only 24% of Russians say this. So we have, uh, we have a Russian president who absolutely can flout uh, all kinds of, of UN rules and faces absolutely no 
uh, public backlash for it, even though obviously Russia's an autocracy, but even among public opinion, he doesn't face any kind of opposition. We do. That's right. And linking geopolitics to what is good for our people in free societies is, I think, crucial going forward. How we align the sources of our prosperity and the sources of our security, how we go about reorganizing global trade. It's also extremely important to make sure that we don't betray the hope that people around the world, even many of those who do live in authoritarian regimes, have of eventually living in freedom and eventually living with the benefits of democracy. So we shouldn't be giving giving up on this. We should be making it work. It's worth spreading. It's worth spreading, but also, and this is to come back to your question from before, is about where lessons need to be learned from the failures of neoconservatism uh, that you mentioned before, and where neo-idealism is substantially different to that, is that where neo-idealism would seek to defend democracy and freedom where they're threatened, and to arm ourselves to do so militarily, it wouldn't seek to impose democracy at gunpoint, as, for example, in the neocon-inspired um, and very misguided invasion of Iraq. So this that's a fundamental difference there. But how then does it spread? Well, first of all, you actually have to give free societies the chance to become the beacon of both material and moral hope that they claim to be. So to make good on our promises, that means fixing our own roof. It means giving people that sense that they have a, a tangibly better future that within their grasp. That your children will have it better off than you do. So exactly so. Paying attention to material prosperity as well. Exactly. So that tomorrow can be better than today and to recover that hope. So to defend, to renew, but also through that renewal to give uh, democracies the soft power, the transformative power that will be an attractive beacon to others. And then to arrange our relations with non-democratic states in ways that don't compromise on that. To build something worth defending, I suppose, is the big part. Anyway, these are some of the exciting uh, points and questions and themes that we are going to be talking about at these uh, these conferences in Berlin and Prague coming up. And don't worry, listeners, we are we're going to be reporting back uh, from there. So do stay tuned for that. And looking at where neo-idealism serves as a particular inspiration in the rest of Europe and what Germany uh, can learn uh, from those countries that are practicing uh, more neo-idealist uh, lines of thought at the moment. Right, Ben? That's right. And also to explore the alternatives to neo-idealism that exist. Um, and we've seen several German politicians advocating for more of, more of the same as we had in the past, clinging on to the world of yesterday. Is that a viable option for the future? We do have some really exciting and interesting guests to be discussing that with, and we're excited to share that with you when we return after those conferences. For now, though from Berlin. Good night and good luck. Auf Wiedersehen. Tschüss.